0: Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. Following on from the Loire Valley, where I spent three episodes discussing that varied and wonderful region, and revisiting another famous and large area which um, I didn't do justice to uh, when I first um, talked about it in this podcast, and that is Bordeaux. Because at the time, I just did one episode in Bordeaux called A Brief Overview, with the intention of returning to it and going into more depth, but then got distracted by all the other regions of the world, and that's all there is um, on my podcast at the moment. So we're going to give it a lot more attention uh, right now, with five episodes dedicated to Bordeaux, which is the largest appellation in France, as well as one of the most famous, so one that really does deserve uh, some more attention. So in this first episode, I'm going to talk about the trade and history of Bordeaux, which are uh, intricately linked. And then in the other episodes, I'll go on to Merlot and Bordeaux, and also talk a bit more about Merlot in general, Cabernet Sauvignon and Bordeaux the dry white wines of Bordeaux, and then in the fifth episode, the sweet white wines of Bordeaux. So there's a huge range of wines made in Bordeaux in just about every style. Uh, There's also rosé and a wine called Claret made, and Claret is what gives uh, Bordeaux its name of Claret, what the British historically called it. And there's also sparkling wine made as well, Cremant de Bordeaux. But I won't really pay too much attention to those. Uh, Rosé is 4% of all Appalachian rosé in France. I have to say is not that particularly exciting. And then Cremon de Bordeaux um, is quite rare and not always that good. And then Claret is a, it's kind of a light-bodied, pale-colored red wine, quite unusual, but quite rare to see on the market as well. So we'll be concentrating on the wines, which you're more, much more likely to see internationally as well as in France. The history of Bordeaux really helps you understand Bordeaux's trade structure, which is quite different from others in France. And it's often helpful, not always helpful, but often, to compare Bordeaux with Burgundy because they're such different regions and that comparison can make them a bit competitive where you say, I prefer Burgundy, I prefer Bordeaux, but they're just so different from each other, it's really interesting. And part of the difference is that Burgundy's history is connected with the church. It was a church which which established those vineyards and Burgundy is a winemaking territory and um, many of the crew are still defined in the way that the church defined them hundreds of years ago. Whereas Bordeaux has never really had any um, church influence on its development. It's been much more about commerce and business and the aristocracy. Uh, There are a couple of wineries with a a religious background, Chateau Chateau du Pate is um, in Pessac-Léognan, and that was owned by a pope though it was before he became a pope back in the twelve hundreds and then there's also a winery uh, that was owned by nuns but that's about it that was called solitude everything else has been uh, more independent and so that has really influenced how the trade structure of bordeaux has developed So going all the way back, uh, the Romans were probably the first plant vines in Bordeaux, they're pretty typical for France, and in fact they planted in what is now uh, Pessac, or Pessac Lyon, right on the city limits of Bordeaux, so that's the historic centre of Bordeaux. But the real um, starting point for Bordeaux's modern history, if you like, is 1152, so nearly 900 years ago. And that's when the future Henry II of England married Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Bordeaux was in the Aquitaine region. And so, in effect, Bordeaux became part of England, and the English at that time owned a lot of France, uh, going all the way down from Normandy down to Bordeaux, on the western side, Atlantic France. And what this meant is that Bordeaux uh, became England's vineyard, because obviously conditions in England are not easy for growing wine. And so owning um, this region where winemaking and grape growing was possible meant that um, England became a big market for the wines of Bordeaux. And Bordeaux grew with um, England as its market rather than uh, France or locally. And so that, that's what really uh, changed that's what really defined Bordeaux, that it was a trading port, and um, it is a port as well, so it's on the Atlantic Ocean. And so it had England as that ready market, and a trade structure built around that. And so the producers would make their wine, and then they would give them to brokers to sell to Negocion, and that is the, um, and the brokers are called courtiers, and that is still the system today. The courtiers take a 2% uh, cut on the wines and then sell them to Negocion, and the Negocion will distribute them um, to the market. that system may seem quite clear-cut but there's often a lot of family connections between those three different tiers and it does um, set prices and rise prices as well but it does provide a ready distribution market for the chateau or the producers who don't have to try and sell the wine themselves and this structure is called La Place de Bordeaux and, uh, and these negociants through the La Place have connections all around the world which means if one market um, suffers they have other markets that they can go to So that again helps the producers who don't have to build up all these markets themselves the whole system is designed that there are all these different markets that the Négosions can work with and sell the wines uh, some producers do go direct but then you do have to have real good connections uh, with the market that you're selling to maybe in restaurants and also but but this Le, but laplace is so um important and works so well that a lot of international producers are now joining laplace to help sell their wines around the world There's quite a few here in california which have joined um, the system to help sell their wines so going back to the history and um, so bordeaux was part of england for 300 years it's actually the last territory In France to be lost um, to the French in 1453 and that was um, obviously a blow to Bordeaux because it lost its ready English market and England and then the UK has always been a huge market for Bordeaux and it's now the fourth biggest uh, market for Bordeaux Uh, but it's been quite turbulent ever since it ceased to be under English control and so Bordeaux had to look for other markets. Um, The Hanseatic League, which was a trading association of northern European countries, Scandinavian and German, um, was where they went to after the English. But the really important influence is the Dutch, in part because the Dutch really liked sweet white wine, and so for hundreds of years, the most famous wines of Bordeaux were sweet and white, and also uh, dry white wine uh, was quite substantial as well. In fact, up until 1969, there was more white wine made than there was red wine, whereas now red wine accounts for 90% of all Bordeaux, so a real change in the last 45 years. But the other important factor uh, that the Dutch brought was drainage. So in 1599, uh, the French king Henry IV ordered that all low-lying marshland should be drained and turned to agricultural use, and that was a order for the whole of France, not just for Bordeaux. And of course the left bank of Bordeaux, that we now know, as, now know as Medoc, was marshland up until the 1600s, so it wasn't used for vines at all, or any kind of agriculture. But the Dutch came in with their uh, drainage specialism and expertise, and uh, drained the Medoc, and revealed uh, soils which had these really large gravel uh, rocks. And with the history of winemaking that Bordeaux already had, Locals realised that this was prime territory for making wine and growing grapes. And there was incentive to drain this land as well, because the landowners um, didn't have to pay tax on the land for 50 years. And so there was a lot of investment into the Medoc, particularly from outside of Bordeaux, with bankers and merchants and industrialists and basically rich people uh, investing the land and planting vines, vines and um, establishing chateaux there. And because of this investment, um, it's very modern and very contemporary, and also there's money to market the wines as well. So they, over the next 200 years, they became quite famous. And those gravel soils were perfect, and we'll talk about that more with uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is, is well suited to those soils in episode 3. But that investment also accounts for the differences between the left bank and the right bank. So on the left bank, the average size of the estates today is about 40 hectares, so quite large. On the right bank in Saint-Emilion, it's 8 hectares, so quite small. And that's because growers um, growing vines and making wine in Saint-Emilion are quite small, more artisanal. Whereas on the left bank in Medoc, these were large, uh, rich producers, so they could own more land. And that still is a significant difference between the two regions, um, even though they're both in Bordeaux. Quite a different culture. And so Bordeaux really began to gain its reputation, and that drainage was so important. So the Medoc um, is low-lying, the highest point is about 45 meters, though it is quite undulating. There are terraces which go down to the river, um, the estuary, the Gironde, and the Garonne, and there are small streams on these terraces which uh, drain the water into the estuary and the river and the Dutch worked with those streams to create that drainage system. So there are uh, canals, small canals in the um, vineyards to help with the drainage. The best producers were maintaining that drainage system because they knew how important it was, but the lesser producers were not. So in 1807, um, there was a syndicate created to oversee the drainage system and to make sure it was kept up to standard because the quality of the wines really relied on that drainage system. It's still very important today. Of course, the most famous dates in Bordeaux's history is 1855 and the 1855 classification, which was for the uh, World Exhibition in Paris. And this was a last minute decision. Burgundy were entering their wines into the exhibition, so Bordeaux decided it had to as well, but they weren't really sure how to do it and how to promote them. So they came up with the idea of classifying. Uh, the wines of the Medoc, uh, by price, and so they commissioned the uh, courtier to come up with a classification, and they came came up with these five growths, the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth growth, and that was solely by price, and they did this just a month before the exhibition, and it took them less than two weeks to do it, because it was based on all their their records and files that they had, um, what prices the wines fetched on a year-to-year basis, and so the four first growths that they selected were the most expensive wines, costing over 3,000 francs a bottle, And then going all the way down to the fifth growths, which were about half the price. Although that classification is more or less the same as it was then, the prices have changed a lot. So now a first growth is about 10 times more than a fifth growth, rather than twice the the amount. So maybe $500 instead of $50. Uh, So prices in the last 20 years in particular have really um, gone in different directions, with the top wines getting more and more expensive. That classification system wasn't designed to be permanent, it was just for this exhibition. But it was so successful and no one has really disputed it too much since then that it has remained in place and is still the defining system for the Medoc with one chateau, Aubryon, clusters of first growth from Pessac, what is now pessac lyonian All the others from Margot, Poyak, Saint-Ocef and saint julien And of course there has been one addition to the first growth since then and that was Mouton Rothschild in 1973. But apart from that it's stayed pretty much the same. So that really cemented Bordeaux's reputation, particularly on the left bank. There have been other classifications since. There is the Cru Bourgeois system, which um, actually dates back um, hundreds of years. There's about 30 odd million bottles produced each year in this classification. It was formally uh, called Cru Bourgeois in 1932, although wines were called Cru Bourgeois before that. And this comes from the kind of um, feudal system, where you had the aristocrats, the bourgeois, then the artisans, and then the peasant at the bottom. So, cru bourgeois was made by the the moneyed classes in Bordeaux. Now, it only refers to wines from Medoc, and it has been revised many times, and it has been revised again this year. So, we've got a new system. Uh, so, in two thousand and ten, um, the system was that a wine would be um, tasted each year and decided whether it was worthy of being cru bourgeois or not they decided that was a bit too unstable having to change it each year so now it's going to be changed every five years and there's going to be three categories Cru Bourgeois, Cru Bourgeois Superior and Cru Bourgeois Exceptionnel as a reward for the best producers producing the top wines and also as an incentive for producers to make better wines and also for the consumer to understand different price points in the Cru Bourgeois system so hopefully um, that will work and create a stable market for producers and consumers. There's also a very small classification called crew artisan, which refers to the um, artisanal workers. So these have to be um, small producers, family producers, not owned by someone else with the family working on the estate, not bringing other people in. So there's only 36 producers classed as crew artisan. So I've never actually uh, tried anything from this classification. It'd be quite fun to do so. And apparently these are producers which bigger producers look at and see how they're doing. And then if they're being successful, they'll buy them out, in which case they'll cease to be a crew artisan. There's also the classification in Grave, which was brought in in 1959. Sixteen producers who were crew class A. So this is kind of based on the um, 1855 classification system But here the crew classé were all one level so there wasn't a first second third growth You were just crew classé or not and just 16 of them and they were all located in what is now the Pessac-Léognan region Which was made into its own appellation in 1987 and that has been bad for Grave in general uh, Grave is the historic center of Bordeaux. It's the it was the first region to have its own name where uh, Consumers and merchants were looking for wines from the Grave region in particular, not just from Bordeaux. But separating passac leognan has really focused attention on that appellation, and prices there are very high, and the quality of wine is extremely good. Uh, but for the rest of Graves, kind of got left behind because it's not Pessac. There can be some very good value wines made from Grave, and we'll talk a more about the appellations when we look at Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. Then on the right bank, there's the Emilion classification, which is always extremely controversial. It's changed every 10 years, and that causes um, legal ramifications for producers who were downgraded or felt that they, that they should be upgraded. And so the 2006 never actually came into place because there were so many legal challenges. But the most recent uh, classification has actually remained solid and legally watertight. And so you have the Grand Cru Classé A, A, Grand Cru Classé B and Grand Cru Classé in general. And there are just four Grand Cru Classé A. So those classifications have emerged over the years and have helped uh, define quality within Bordeaux. So different from Burgundy, again, which is all about the vineyard. In Bordeaux, it's about the producer. But we'll talk a bit more about the terroir and the soils of Bordeaux in future episodes. But Bordeaux did have a difficult 100 years or so after that 1855 classification because of diseases, uh, mildew, And then, of course, Phylloxera came in, and that was really devastating with a lot of producers leaving Bordeaux and southwest France for other regions in Spain, Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina. And it also changed the uh, plantings as well. So a lot of grape varieties planted before Phylloxera, which more or less disappeared after Phylloxera because they didn't really take well to grafting. And so the grape varieties that we know now in Bordeaux uh, became settled after Phylloxera. But then you had the First World War, Depression, Second World War, and 1956, there was a huge frost which really devastated the vines, killed off Malbec, and most producers just didn't bother replanting Malbec, and that's when really Merlot really got its um, foothold in the vineyard, and now it's about two-thirds of plantings in Bordeaux. So by the 1970s, quality in Bordeaux had fallen. Chemicals being used in the vineyard, varieties planted in the wrong places, and um, not, not enough money being invested, and so quality was falling, so it had to be really shaken up. So the en premier system, which had always existed for um, Negociants to taste the wines and set the prices, uh, was widened to trade from outside of Bordeaux and also to journalists, of course. So the en premier system is simply tasting the, the new vintage um, around about May, Deciding how good it is, so people know what the quality already is. But so actually tasting the wines and confirming that quality, and that will help set the prices. And of course, people, will, merchants, will buy the wines at that on-premier price. And there are different tranches where the wines get the prices. Of the wines get higher with each tranche, so you want to buy it straight away. It's a system which really suits the producers because it brings money in straight away and it sets high prices. Not so good for the consumer because rather like buying a new car, as soon as the wines released the prices fall and it's pretty difficult to get your money back on Premier, though it does guarantee that you get the wines. So generally, unless it's the first growth, buying a wine at an auction later on is uh, cheaper than buying it on Premier. But of course, you have to wait for it to come up, f- come up for auction and actually uh, win the auction while still pay- paying the, the amount that you want to. Other influences on Bordeaux is of course Robert Parker with the 1982 vintage that really made his name, and there's definitely been a trend towards bigger, bolder, riper wines, which is perhaps co- going back more balanced now, uh, kind of in general across the board, not just Bordeaux, with the influence of Robert Parker not as strong as it was. But of course that's also connected with uh, climate change, warmer growing conditions, and also better plantings, planting Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot in the right place rather than the wrong place. So we have seen an overall increase in quality. And at the same time, changing markets with the UK no longer the biggest market, but China the biggest market, and one that's um, been very influential on Bordeaux and keeping prices high, though the Chinese are a bit more sceptical about Bordeaux now. Um, And then the US was a big influence as well with Robert Parker in the 80s and 90s. So changing markets and Bordeaux having to be adaptable to who's buying the wine and what markets they're selling them into. And then the other trend is price. So the top wines have got more and more expensive, in part because of the American and Chinese markets. But at the lo- lower end, um, inexpensive Bordeaux has stayed pretty much the same. And so that's not an, an area which is easy to make money in. And also the price of land has stayed the same for inexpensive Bordeaux, whereas for the, um, the top growths, it's got, uh, the land has got really expensive. So in Pauillac, it could be 2 million euros a hectare. Uh, for Bordeaux AOC, it could be just uh, €16,000 per hectare. So a huge difference in price in land and the price of the wines as well. And that has meant a lot of consolidation at the bottom of Bordeaux. Average plantings have gone from about 7 hectares 20 years ago to 17 hectares now. Average holdings have doubled, and that's because a lot of big producers have bought out smaller producers who just can't survive in this climate when the wines are so inexpensive and difficult to make money from. And that has been linked with um, a drive to increase the quality of inexpensive Bordeaux and the price. So the sub-5 euro category, which is pretty cheap, has really fallen off, which is a good thing because it's impossible to make money at that point. And there's so much competition from regions where vintages are more consistent and the wines are riper and fruitier, so Chile, South Africa, Australia, for instance, or even the Languedoc within France. And so really looking towards five euro bottles of wine and more to increase quality, uh, to increase profits, and to really compete in more advantageous markets rather than at the bottom. And that's where uh, regions like Grave or the classification like Cru Bourgeois can come in and be good value at a decent price where you can make some money, but the consumer isn't being uh, ripped off too much, whereas at the top it's um, really, really expensive. So that's the history of Bordeaux and the trade system and hopefully I've outlined how those two are connected, how the trade system has been built up um, as Bordeaux's history has developed with the different markets and also the different styles of wines that have emerged and which I'll talk about in the next few episodes. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.